We continue our work on our theme of 2011, how in the world, how does Christianity work in the real world? Go to this one. Okay, we're having a little mic trouble today, so we will turn that off. Try to stay close to this one. What was our theme this year? How in the world, that's it. How in the world does Christianity work? And we've been through a number of things. Uh, talked about our work life, our leisure life. We just finished a session about our trials and tribulations. How do all the things that we learn in the Bible, we talk about on Sunday, all of that, how does that apply in the, the real world? I hope you recognize that last verse of that song we just sang. That was our key verse for trials and tribulations. Uh, God said, do not fear, for I am with you. Uh, do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Uh, hopefully we got that one and learned we apply that in our trials and tribulations. Our current series is the biblical foundation of marriage and family. Uh, our question is, how in the world can a marriage survive? How can a marriage survive in this world? How can a family thrive in this world, in the society where things are so difficult for both marriage and the family? Does the Bible have some good advice for that? Does the Bible have guidelines that uh, will make that work in the real world? Last week we looked at the current state of marriage and family and decided that it was pretty pitiful. The foundations have been crumbling. Uh, we concluded that we need to rebuild the foundation. We need to go back to the beginning. So we went back to the beginning and looked at Genesis 2, uh, where God said what marriage was supposed to be like. Uh, he, he talked about in Genesis, we're not going to go back through all of it or read it, but we found out how marriage was supposed to be in the beginning. And we noted that lots of folks get all fired up when you talk about marriage because they want to talk about, well, what about when marriages fail? They want to know all about what you do when this happens or when that happens or what if or how about. And I admit divorce is a reality. I know it happens, but that's not our topic. And we looked at the biblical foundation of marriage. And in doing that, we're also following the example of Jesus, I think, because uh, in uh, Matthew, uh, when he was asked to get into that controversy about what about this and how about this and what happens when divorce and all that, he didn't answer the question. He went back to the foundation. That's all he told them. He said, haven't you read? Don't you know what God said in the beginning? And he went back and just quoted it. Just reiterated it. He didn't answer the question. He said, you get the foundation right. Yes, we have to deal with all the other things later, but the important thing is to get the foundation right first. And some of the points that we made as we worked through the beginning teaching were that marriage is a covenant, not a contract. Western society treats it as a contract. Two people of... Any persuasion can enter into a contract and they can dissolve it whenever they want to. Marriage, God says marriage is a covenant. 
It's a divine idea. It's not man didn't make it up. It's God sanctioned. He won't sanction something that he's against. Uh, it's approved by him. It's about one male and one female being joined to become one. We said that it was permanent, that it's a giving of self to the other one, that it's an exclusive covenant. Remember, that's what Jesus said. Jesus said, how can you separate that? If you look at what God wants, how can you separate that? Now, if, we said last week, if we could get away somehow from the, the trivial, frivolous ideas of marriage that we've got in this world and understand the foundation of a covenant marriage, things would begin to change, at least among Christians who would, would follow that. All right, so that's where we've been. Now, the next two lessons... Uh, we're going to talk about, tackle another part of the biblical foundation that's crumbled. And that's gender roles. What is a biblical man? What is a biblical woman? What's manhood? What's womanhood? What's masculinity? What's femininity? What's it mean to be a real man? What's it mean to be a real woman? As intended by God. Now, obviously, the battle of the sexes goes on. That, that started at the fall, remember, and we're going to see that a little more today. And as we talk about this, I don't want to kind of lay some groundwork here before we get busy. Uh, we're going to talk about, stay in the middle of the road, we're going to talk about the topic of biblical manhood and womanhood. Now, I, I know there's a whole other topics I know we hear all the time in the news and in the paper and all sorts of places uh, about people that believe they're one gender trapped in the wrong gender body. And well, we hear that kind of thing. We hear people that <clears throat> have figured out how to get men pregnant somehow and do some surgery and make that happen. I, all that's out there. I understand that. That's outside my understanding. It's outside my comfort zone. Well, we're not going there. Uh, we, we, are, we are talking about, uh, and, I, and I use this term without prejudice and without malice, we're talking about normal folks. Uh, no, we're talking about men and women who are trying to function in today's society as men and women and have, are having a difficult time because society's got it all confused. We, we don't know what's expected of us. We don't know what we're supposed to do as a man or as a woman sometimes. Uh, society's got a lot of crazy ideas. I just read an article not too long ago about parents. Actually, it was a whole school formed by these parents who, who want to keep everything in school, preschool and kindergarten and all that, gender neutral. They're not even going to call the kids him or her or she and he. They want the, the children to grow up and choose their gender. That's out there, folks. And that makes being a man and a woman a difficult thing in these days. I don't believe gender is a matter of choice. Uh, and I hope those children, whatever they grow up to be, at least have enough sense to sue their parents someday for child abuse. <laughs> But maybe they'll be so confused they don't know. Uh, so our topic is 
normal folks, men and women trying to function together in society or in marriage. And it's hard because the old rules have been bent. Uh, John Wayne has been replaced by metrosexuals and sensitivity. There's all kinds of things that confuse us. We don't know how we're supposed to act. Uh, so today, the topic is the nature of biblical manhood. What is a real man? Now, I know some of you are a little suspicious that I chose to do this on the day my wife is out of town. <laughs> uh, this happened. I didn't schedule it that way. And I know you'll all tell her what I say anyway, so all right, here we go. All right, what's it mean to be a real man? You can buy books that tell you what not to do or what to do. There's all kinds. Some are serious and some are frivolous, but that the, tell you all sorts of things you shouldn't do if you want to be a real man or how to be a man's man in this world. Uh, you can watch old movies and find out how the Duke did it or Chuck Norris or General Patton or Clint Eastwood or some of those real men. Um, I'm not sure that any of them would make very good husbands, but at least we had kind of a concept back then. Uh, we had something that we kind of looked up to at least. And now all that's politically incorrect. It might surprise you, but even pop culture agrees that there's something wrong with manhood. This is Newsweek. And the small print there on the guy's back says, The traditional male is an endangered species. It's time to rethink masculinity. Okay? That's what the pop culture even says. They say things aren't working. Now, when I saw that cover, I thought, oh, I'm going to grab that and that'll come in handy someday. And when I read the article, I was just further dismayed. Because their answer, <laughs> pop culture's answer, a lot of society's answer, at least in this article, their answer was to force more unisex behavior. They want men to act more like women, to take more traditional women's jobs, to stay home and do more of the housework and things. They, they just want to confuse it a little bit more. And, of course, they want government programs to do that. One proposal they had was that when a, child, a couple has a child, that the man, so he can learn how to nurture and do all that, he ought to take a year off work and stay home. Like both parents ought to stay home and raise the child for the first year. And at the end of the paragraph, they said that would only cost the country $25 billion to pay for that. Well, that's their solution, is let's just confuse it a little bit more and... That'll redefine masculinity in their terms. Evidently, the Newsweek editors don't read the Bible. So let's forget Newsweek and let's read the Bible. And that's what we're going to do for most of this sermon is we're going to look at what God says back in the beginning. Now, the story starts in creation. And that, that's what we've got to Understand, And like I said, we're going to, I put the highlights on your handout, but we're going to go through this and see if we can see what God intended. In Genesis 1 and 2, we read about creation. Now, we know some of it. Mankind was made in the image of God, made in the likeness of God. Last week, we saw that God created mankind as male and female. That's old news. We talked about that last time. Now, let's go to chapter 2 and verse 15. 
And it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, this is the man. This is before the woman was there, folks. He took the man, put him in the garden. He was supposed to take care of it and work it. Then in verse 16, he was given the command to obey God. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat it, you will surely die. Now, man's still alone in verse 16. We've got no record that God ever told Eve that. She knew it. We assume Adam told her, but we got no record that God told her. But we just got man so far. Now, in verse 18, God said it wasn't good for man to be alone. It's come to that point in the creation where he needs a suitable helper. And in verse 20, woman was supposed to be that suitable helper. She was made to help Adam. And then in verse 24, we've looked at that. This man and woman were supposed to be united and become one. All right, now that's the creation. Now we got the fall. Then things changed at the fall. In Genesis 3 we begin to find out what happened. In verse 1, we see that the serpent, or Satan, tempted the woman. We've got Adam and Eve both there. We've got man and woman on earth, but Satan tempted Eve. Now, we picture that sometimes, I think, in our minds, as Eve wanders over here by this tree and the serpent approaches her and and Adam's off somewhere picking tomatoes or something. We don't know where he is, but Eve's over here doing this. Well, that's not biblical. That's kind of our picture in our mind, but that's not what happened. In verse 6, it says, the woman discussed it with Satan. She reasoned it out. She decided that she would sin. She listened to Satan's arguments. She discussed it with him. She told him, here's what God said. He said, no, you don't have to believe that. She said, okay, I'll go ahead and sin. That happened in verse 6. Then read the rest of verse 6. Then she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Adam wasn't off picking tomatoes. He was there. He was watching all this. He was participating. He was letting her lead. Well, some of you say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, look what happened in verse 8. After this happened, the sound of the Lord God came in the garden, and they hid from the Lord God. But verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Are you you starting to see the problem here? God held the man accountable. God said, Adam, I got to talk to you about this. Where are you hiding? Well, then in verse 12, Adam said, it's her fault. (laughs) She did it. That woman you gave me, she's the problem. Eve said, serpent's problem. He's the one that caused me to do it. Everybody passed the blame on down. We know that human nature. But that's what happened at the fall. 
Now, the consequences come next. There were consequences. The punishment is listed at the end of chapter 3. And in verse 6, we find out the woman's punishment. 14 and 15, we got the serpent's punishment. Then 16, God gave the woman two punishments. Number one, she was going to have to suffer pain in childbirth. Okay? Number two, it says her desire would be for her husband. And if we don't study just a little bit more or read another chapter, we think, well, that's kind of romantic. She'll desire her husband. That's not the word. Go over to chapter 4 and verse 7, and God's talking to Cain, and he tells him in verse 7, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. It's the exact same word, and it means sin wants to rule over you. Sin wants to be in charge of you. Sin wants to be in command of you. Sin wants to be your boss. It's the woman's punishment. She will want to be in charge of the man. Verse 17, the man gets his punishment. And God notes before he gives him his punishment why he's being punished. Listen to this now. Verse 17, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. What I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Then you get the curse because he let Eve take the lead. God said, I told you not to eat from it. Then I created a woman. She got here and you let her take the lead. You listened to her. You let her make the decision. You let her be in charge. So your curse is you're going to have to work hard for a living. Now, you might note, just as a side note, that pain in childbirth was the woman's punishment. The man doesn't have to suffer that punishment. He does in some ways, but not the same way. What was the man's punishment? To work hard for a living. That wasn't the woman's punishment. It might come in handy in just a little while. Just note that. All right. Now, that's what happened at the beginning. Now, in the New Testament, there are a number of times, and we're not going to go through them in detail. I gave you the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 5, 1 Timothy 2. There are other places where gender roles are the problem. Where gender roles become the problem among Christians, either in marriage, either in leadership in the church, or either in worship roles. All the places that gender roles still become a problem. In the New Testament, that was happening. Some marriages were messed up. Some leadership in the church was questioned. Some worship roles were questioned. And when the writer wrote to answer them, to tell people what the right thing to do was. And bear in mind, it wasn't just a writer. It was the Holy Spirit writing through a person. He answered them the same way every time. He did not answer them by appealing to the culture of that day. He could have because there's a distinctive gender role understanding in every culture. Today, that's the way people want to answer a lot of questions. 
one of my files I found an old Dear Abby column, not too old, a couple of years actually. But some woman wrote in and said, I'm a fiercely independent and headstrong woman. I've been dating uh, so-and-so, uh, and he is a traditional guy. And he's more comfortable with the man's role. And he wants me to adapt to that. Now, I don't know all their problems and don't really care, but listen to what Abby says. Abby's answer is, it's obvious that his thinking is firmly rooted in the 1930s. And women have come a long way since then. I don't think assuming the role that he wants you to assume would be healthy for you. See, that's answering the question. Uh, they've got a gender role problem. And Abby answered the question by appealing to the traditional norms of the day, the culture of the day. Holy Spirit never did that. He didn't say, here's what's going on in Ephesus, and here's how everybody feels about this, and here's how you ought to interpret it. Neither did he even stop by going back to the curse of the fall. He didn't say, well, here's the punishment, and that's why this is the way it is. He answered every time by going back to the creation. He went back to the creation order, the creation of design. He said, Here's the way man and woman were created. That's the answer, folks. Just like we found out to rebuild the foundation of marriage, we've got to go back to the beginning and see what marriage was supposed to be. To be able to figure out or even get close to figuring out our confusion over gender roles, we've got to go back to creation. We've got to go back to what God intended. So, as we rebuild the foundation, we got to try to figure out what biblical masculinity is. What's a real man? Now, I understand. Let me explain some more again. Last week, we looked at the basics of marriage. And it doesn't answer all the really hard questions. I know that. But it sure helps... <laughs> to fix things and to guide future generations if we understand the basics. Okay? That's why if nobody else listens today, the rest of you can tune out as far as I'm concerned. I want these young ladies right down here to listen because they got to pick a real man someday. Okay? Well, they're going to pick a man, and I hope they pick a real man. I hope they pick a biblical real man. Because right now we're a little confused about that in this world. All right, I'm going to give you three things that seem most evident from the creation story. The most evident to me anyway. And let me just prepare you here. This is not exhaustive. This isn't complete. You can get a whole lot more out of the creation story. But I think these three things are at the very heart of biblical manhood. I think we need to understand them. Uh, it's going to be kind of like 30 minutes of basics, and yeah, then we could have 30 hours of questions. Yeah, but what about? <laughs> we're not going there. We, we're laying the basics for you. Okay. And let me put one more caveat in here. I understand that these things that I'm going to tell you a biblical man will do, some men may not be able to do physically. 
Uh, they may be handicapped in some way. They may not be able to. Geographically, they might be, not be able to. Their work or service to the country or something may take them away uh, where women have to do more of these roles. But I think these three things are at the very heart of biblical masculinity. All right, let's go. First, a real man will want to lead. Okay? Now, I know I'm in trouble already because that's a difficult word. When some people say lead or hear lead, they think, ah, he's talking domineering. He's talking domination. He's telling women everything to do. And some people hear it and say, ah, he's talking about servant leadership. He's talking about Christ-like leadership. So I know everybody hears different things. But from the creation story, I hope you can see that God expected Adam to lead. So at the very heart of biblical manhood, a real man will want to lead. A man should feel the responsibility of leadership. Now, biblical leadership is all about the strength to serve somebody else, to sacrifice for somebody else. That's what biblical leadership is about. But just from today's culture, we, we can understand a few things about leadership that might help you understand what I'm saying here. Those of you that worked in the business world and all that have had probably good leaders and bad leaders. And you know that a good leader doesn't come into a meeting or come into an organization or whatever to show their superiority. A good leader utilizes the strengths of everyone around him. You guys that have been out in the world enough, you know that. He's a good leader. He's a bad leader. Okay. A good biblical man leader doesn't show their superiority. They, they utilize the wife's input, the, the children's input even. They listen. A good leader doesn't have to initiate or decide everything. A good leader sets the general pattern. A good leader makes sure we're on track. A good leader accepts the responsibility, the burden of making the final decision when it's necessary. Now, this is a key now, men. Listen to this. A husband ought to listen to input. A husband ought to often surrender what he thinks is best to what somebody else thinks is best in situations where it's not make or break the family. But when it's a key point, when it's about the direction spiritually or financially or morally of the family, the man takes the responsibility of making the call. He feels the responsibility to lead the family. A leader, a biblical leader, disciplines the children. Now, I know sometimes both parents are not present, and if the woman's there by herself, she has to do that. But when both parents are present, no woman should ever have to take responsibility to discipline a disobedient child while the husband sits there oblivious like it's nothing matters. It does matter. God said, fathers, train up your children. 
Children need to see that leadership. They need to understand that gender role. Men need to take that leadership step. Let me read you a quote from James Dobson about America's greatest need. He says, a Christian man is obligated to lead his family to the best of his ability. If his family has purchased too many items on credit, then the financial crunch is ultimately his fault. If the family never reads the Bible or seldom goes to church on Sunday, God holds the man to blame. If the children are disrespectful and disobedient, primary responsibility lies with the father, not his wife. In my view, America's greatest need is for husbands to begin guiding their families. The heart of biblical manhood, a man will lead. Second, a real man will want to provide for his family. Now, this is another difficult topic because our workforce has flipped in this country. There's more women than men working in the workforce. A lot of studies show that women make more than men in a lot of areas. Now, when I talk about work and all that, I understand all women work. They have a, a homemaking responsibility, a, a nurturing responsibility if they have children. So, so everybody works, whether in the home or out of the home. But some women want to work out of the home. I understand that. And some women have to work outside the home. I understand that. Not near as much as we think we do sometimes. All sorts of studies show that by the time you pay for all the extra child care and gas and clothes and everything else, you're losing money. You'd stay home and manage the home, you'd have more money. But I understand all that. I understand that both man and woman may have to work. I understand they both may agree. Let's, let's work, both work for a while for this special goal. Let's, let's get out of debt. Let's pay this off. Let's provide for this. Let's do something. I understand all that. And I know that Proverbs 31 talks about a virtuous woman. And a virtuous woman, a model woman, buys and sells land and works and gets up early and has businesses and does things. I understand all that. What I'm trying to tell you in this one is that when there's no bread on the table, the man should feel the pressure to get it. That's a part of biblical manhood, to provide for his family. Adam's God-given role in the garden was to work. His punishment for listening to his wife and letting her lead, his punishment was he had to work hard. That's the man. That's his task. Now, if a man demands that his wife carry the load, or even half of the load, because he is lazy, or because he is immature, or because he is a spendthrift, or because he wants to have more toys than all the other guys, and if he expects her or demands her to participate, to help carry him part of the load, that is wrong. The man is the primary provider. I already told you a few minutes ago, some men can't physically, some men can't geographically. I understand all that. 
But if he expects his wife to add to her role of nurturing and homemaking and all of that to help him because he's too lazy or spendthrifty to do his part, that's wrong. It's biblical manhood. Third, a real man will want to protect a woman. Women and children get in the lifeboat first for a reason. That's just the way it is. That's the nature of things. That's what we're talking about today. And on the Titanic, when a few men tried to sneak in ahead of the women and children, they were scorned. They were looked down on. They, were, they, they weren't real men. Once again, this is a difficult topic. Feminists don't like this. They say, I am woman. Hear me roar. One of them said a, man, a woman needs a, a man like a fish needs a bicycle. You know, they don't want to hear this. I'm sorry, I'm reading Bible. I'm not talking culture. And it's not about strength and weakness. It's not about that. It's about man's God-given role. We saw it in creation. His job was to guard the garden. His job was to lead the woman. His job was protect her. He let her go wrong. And he got called to account for it. And he got punished specifically because he did that. And part of this is physical. Yeah, if a man and woman are walking down the street, whether it's his wife or a sister or a stranger, I don't care. It's a man and a woman. And some bad guy jumps out with a tire iron and threatens them. A man steps in front to handle it. He is willing to suffer for her safety. That's a sense of biblical manhood. He feels the responsibility to protect the woman. If something goes bump in the night while you're both in bed, the man gets up to go investigate. I realize in some families, mama might have better odds in the fight. <laughs> but man feels the responsibility. I will protect her. I will go see what this is. I will handle it. This is my job. Okay. And just a side thought. This ties into the providing a little bit. Protecting a woman. Uh, my wife's worked at various times in our marriage, earlier rather than later, but we tried it some, and I think it's my responsibility to provide in some sense, but in another sense, I want to protect her from the world. I've been in the work world, folks. Don't try to kid me. It's a hard place. It's a tough place for a woman. There's evil things out there. I'd rather protect her from that. Protecting, let's talk about that some more. This sense of responsibility. And this goes even beyond being married. This should be evident in, in young men, in, in boys for that matter. If you have this sense of protection, that affects the way that a man talks about a woman, uh, women, the way he thinks about women, the way he treats women. He wants to protect them. Adam's fear of responsibility in the garden was to guard it and to keep it. Man ought to protect. All right. Now, 
I understand. All of that I've just told you is countercultural. Against culture. Culture has all sorts of ideas. They're all pushed by either chauvinism or feminism or just plain sin. But there's all kinds of ideas out there. Now, I'm not saying you can't do gender roles differently. You can. You can do them way differently if you want. But what I want you to understand is the farther away we get from the plan, the more troubles we have. Because that's not the way we were created. It's not the nature of manhood and womanhood to start changing those roles. Let me read you a quote by J.I. Packer, good biblical scholar. He said, while I'm not keen on hierarchy and patriarchy as terms to describe the man-woman relationship in Scripture, Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5 continue to convince me that the man-woman relationship is intrinsically non-reversible. By this I mean, other things being equal, a situation in which a female boss has a male secretary, or a marriage in which the woman, as we say, wears the trousers, will put more strain on the humanity of both parties than if it were the other way around. This is part of the reality of the creation, a given fact that nothing will change. Okay? Now, you may not like that position. You may not like what Mr. Packer said there. I promised you last week this one and the next sermon would be unpopular. But I also promised you they would be biblical. They would be consistent with the biblical concept of God's design. Biblical manhood, we should be able to figure out from the creation. The closer we stay to that concept, the better we will be at rebuilding the foundations of marriage and family. All right, we've got two blocks of our foundation now. Uh, we've got the biblical foundation of marriage, the nature of marriage, and the nature of manhood. Next time, we're going to tackle the nature of womanhood. That's a subject I am uniquely unqualified to discuss. But fortunately, I've got a divine standard that tells me what womanhood was intended to be. So we'll tackle that next time together. Thank you for your attention. The lesson is yours. If you're here this morning and need to respond to the Lord's invitation, we always take time to sing a song and invite anyone who has a public need to come to the front. If that's you today, please come. Let's stand and sing.